Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you this morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor of young adults here. And it's a great privilege for me to be able to preach today on my favorite passage in all the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. It was a number of years ago that I really tried to study this passage for myself, and it changed the way I view my Christian life. Previously, I kind of thought, well, you know, you got to really work hard and try to do your best. God saved you, and then, man, you, you, better, you better, like, live up to it. But this has changed, completely changed my perspective in recognizing that the same grace I was given in salvation is the same grace I'm given in our sanctification or how we become more like Christ. So my hope for you is that some light bulbs go on this morning on one of the high peaks in all of Scripture. Uh, John chapter 15. So before we jump in, let me pray for us and pray for me so that we can really um, hear from the Lord this morning. Father, I thank you for your kindness and love. Lord, today is Palm Sunday where we are celebrating your um, son coming in triumphantly on a donkey where five days later we, we cried crucify him. So Lord, Today, as we study the words you spoke immediately before the cross, Lord, would you work in our minds and our hearts to recognize that you are the only source of joy and allow us to forsake those false vines that it's so tempting for us to try to attach ourselves to. So help us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the reasons that I love this passage so much is the audacity of Jesus' claim. In this passage, verses 1 through 12, Jesus claims that he is the only, the soul, the true source of all joy. That only through him Will any human who has ever lived experience real, lasting, true joy? This is a pretty dramatic claim. Well, let's, look, let's jump in. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Well, here's Jesus. Chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus' final discourse. It's his teachings while he is having the Last Supper with his disciples. That event immortalized in Da Vinci's The Last Supper. And here he is, mere hours before going to the cross, and he is teaching some of the most crucial parts of his message. And here he is claiming that he is the true vine, not just a vine, but the true vine or the genuine vine, the legitimate vine. And God the Father is the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vineyard. Now, Jesus is not bringing, uh, just using this illustration off the cuff. Rather, this illustration analogy of the vine is all throughout the Old Testament. See, the nation of Israel is God's chosen vine, with which he would give his blessings to the world, and which would be a go-between before uh, the the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and himself. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah, that 
Every time Israel is called the vine, it's always in reference to their disobedience. You see, the vine dresser, the father, would dig all around the vine, would fertilize it, would tend it, would care for it. And when the time came to to expect fruit, there was no fruit. And so in in Isaiah and Jeremiah, he is saying, I'm going to cut down this vine and a new shoot will rise up. Well, here Jesus is claiming, you know that vine that that the nation of Israel was supposed to be as a conduit of God's blessing? I am the true vine. I'm the legitimate, the genuine vine. I am the source of all blessing, and I am the go-between before the Almighty and you. Verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Well, Jesus says that Followers of him, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, they are branches to a vine. Now, don't think of an ornamental vine that you might have at your house. Think of when you go up the shore of Lake Erie, where you see those beautiful, expansive vineyards, where you have a large, thick, gnarly grapevine deeply anchored into the ground. Then you have branches that come off of that vine and produce fruit. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, followers of me are the branches. Now, Jesus says, hey, the branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Now, let's push pause on that, and I'll address that in, chapters, in, in verse 6. But what he says, the branch that does abide in me, the branch that is part of me, he produces fruit. But if you're in this room, you are one of three categories, You are either a branch that has been pruned, a branch that will be pruned, or you're not a branch at all. Now, some of you here are thinking, yeah, I'm a branch, and I'm connected to Christ, and I feel like God's put me through the ringer lately. My family's been sick, and finances have been tough, and I feel like I've been doing the right thing, but man, my life is struggling right now. If that's the case, take heart, because you might just be in a season of pruning. But the reason that he's pruning you is because he has confidence in you. He expects and knows that you've proved yourself, he's pruned you, and you're going to produce fruit in the future. I know some of your your stories personally, and I know you are really going through a season where you feel like God is just cutting you up. Maybe it's because he's got some great things for you in the future. You see, either you are you have been pruned, you will be pruned, or you're not a branch at all. And we'll, we'll address that in a moment. So here is Jesus, the genuine vine. The father is the caretaker, the vine dresser, and we are branches. And God, through Christ, desires to produce fruit through you. Look at me, verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So here's Jesus' command. You abide in me like a branch abides in the vine. 
Now, this word abide is not something we use a lot in our normal speech. It's the Greek word meno, which elsewhere is used as to, to remain in or to keep in, to reside in. But the best way to understand this word abide is simply to look at the analogy that Jesus gives us. You think of a branch and a vine. The task of the branch is to abide, to stay in, stay connected to the vine. The vine is the sole source of nourishment. It's the anchor with which it holds up all the branches. It's where all the water and the nutrients are absorbed from the soil. And the branch is only a conduit. The branch doesn't get its own nutrition. The branch doesn't do have its own roots. The branch is simply a conduit with which the vine produces fruit. That's the same with us. Do you realize that your job as a branch is not to produce fruit? It's simply to abide in the vine. Your job is not to try with all your might to muster up the fruit and to prove yourself and to show God you're worth it. Your job is to abide in the vine. And a branch that does abide in the vine, by nature of it being a branch, will produce fruit. See, too often I think in your life, I know in mine, I'm so consumed with I gotta be this person, I gotta live this way, I gotta, I gotta produce fruit, I gotta prove myself that we as a branch turn away from the vine and focus on the fruit. But what Jesus is saying, you're never gonna produce fruit that way. You, your one job, stay at home mom, your one job is to abide in the vine. Get, per, work you know, businesswoman, businessman, your one job is to abide in the vine. That is the only way we will produce fruit. It's interesting, Jesus says, look, I am the true vine. I'm the genuine vine. Why does he say that he's the true vine? Well, it's because there's so many other vines that we're so apt to connect ourselves to right? All these vines that we think as the source of life and the source of fruit. We think of the vine of status, which tries to produce fruit to answer the question, do I have value? Think of the vine of relationships, which tries to answer the question, am I desirable? The vine of money, am I safe? The vine of political identity, do I have power? The vine of family, am I significant? The vine of pleasure, am I missing out on something good? And the vine of dead religion, am I good enough before God Almighty? What counterfeit vine are you most tempted to attach yourself to? You can connect yourself to any of these vines and draw from them, but they will always leave you withered and fruitless because you are made for something different. See, there are all sorts of, sorts of vines in the world. My uh, mom grew up in Mississippi, and there's this thing called a kudzu vine. Have you, ever, you know what a kudzu vine is? No? A couple. This is a worthless vine. 
Deer can't eat it, animals can't eat it. It just grows over things, and you have to uh, bomb it with poison to kill it, like there's whole dead areas. Aren't there so many things in our life? <laughs> that's like a kudzu vine, or it, it's everywhere, and well, every, it, it's, it seems to be strong, and well, everyone's kind of going along that path, but it doesn't produce fruit, it's not good for anything. Right, I think it's easy for us to pick out some of those vines we don't want to be. Right, I think of like poison ivy. Right, like I'm highly allergic to poison ivy. I recognize that and I stay away. There are people in, you, in your life that you know, okay, that's not something I want to attach myself to. But too often we settle for something that won't bring too jo- true joy. Too often we are allured by something about another vine, but Christ is the only source of fruit. Only in Christ will we experience true fruit bearing because that is how we were designed. We were designed to be united with Christ. Look at me, verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So here it is. Christ is laying it out. We abide in Christ, we produce fruit. If we are apart from Christ, we produce nothing. Now some may say, now Josh, I hear you, but I know a lot of really great people who aren't Christians. You know, a lot of people that do a good job at work and they seem to be good neighbors and they you know, seem to be good citizens. What, what, about, what about them? Do we just disregard some of those things that they do in their life? Well, I don't think so. I think we honor them and we honor the contribution that people do make apart from Christ, just like we honor uh, the ingenuity and the beauty that um, can be put into a sandcastle right? There's some amazing sandcastles I've seen, but the reality is that the tide is coming in and everything one day will be proven for what it truly is. See, abiding in Christ, he offers us a life built on cement, something that can be, have an anchor, something that can withstand the storms and the tides of life. See, just uh, Two days ago, I attended the funeral of my uh, wife's, Deborah's grandmother. Wonderful lady, knew the Lord. But man, when you attend a funeral, really quick you, you begin to see what truly lasts, what truly matters, what endures. So many things are just like put out on the front lawn and sold for a couple dollars. And there are only few things in life that truly last. And that's what Christ offers the branches, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Look at the verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So here Jesus is giving a warning to those branches who might think, well, I, you know, I'm doing okay, or I'm just going to live my life. I'm saved, but 
I'm just going to live as if I'm not. And many Christians are that way. They have their fire insurance, but they aren't living the life that God desires for them. And Scripture says that those branches are taken and piled up and burned. Now, it seems to sound that Jesus says that we can lose our salvation. Well, we know that's the case, or we know that's not the case throughout Scripture. And even in John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So we can't leave, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you cannot lose your salvation. Well, then what is this about? It's about our usefulness. Jesus is talking to Christians about how to be Christians. And he is saying, you can live in such a way that your life will be found in the end as useless. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 says this, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The warning given to the disciples is the same warning given to me and to you today. If you live a life apart from Christ, your accomplishments will all burn up and your life will have been a waste but you still will be saved. But if you're in this room and you think, well, okay, if I'm still saved, well, that, if your heart's like, well, I've still got my fire insurance, but I'm gonna live the way that I wanna live, you almost certainly do not know Christ. You're not a branch. You have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you need to repent of your sins and receive salvation today. Because Christ warns us that I want you to live a life of meaning and of value and of purpose and of fruit that endures, but there is a way for you not to live that way, but still be saved. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here is Christ setting up a formula. You see, all these things that we can pursue, meaningful relationships with family, a successful career, you know, hobbies, those type of things, those things are still, they are good, but they must be assessed according to this tool that Christ has given us. He says, look, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask for whatever you want. Christ says, if 
you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a pretty nice blank check, right? Well, I got some stuff to ask for, okay. But what he is saying here is when we abide in Christ and Christ's words abide in us, the deepest desires of our hearts begin to change and we begin to ask for whatever brings God the most glory. See, when we abide in Christ, our cravings change. He changes our cravings to that which is good and which produces fruit. I know some of you uh, in the room are, uh, work with nutrition and fitness, and you understand that in order to go from someone that craves you know, processed sugars, Coke, and Netflix to someone who craves like vegetables and a trip to the gym, something has to happen on a day-to-day basis. It's not just, man, I heard that inspirational speech and I'm a new person. It takes a daily change in life to change your cravings. That's what the Christian life is about. It is a daily abiding in Christ. And what happens when we abide in Christ, one day we wake up and realize that our cravings have changed. I can't imagine anyone in this room who doesn't have cravings they wish would just go away. Cravings in our heart that cause us shame or cause us frustration. Maybe those hidden things in our lives. What Christ is saying is when we abide in him, he transforms our hearts so that the things that we want and ask of him are things that brings God the most glory. Because Christ, because God says, Christ knows, because he experienced it, that the things that bring God the most glory are the things that bring us the most joy. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, up until this point of verse 1 through 8, Jesus is developing this analogy. And now, starting in verse 9, he is explaining or commenting on this analogy. And what he is doing here is he's telling us that abiding in Christ is abiding in Christ's love. And the same love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for us. And that is the love that we are to stay in, to remain in, that all-abiding, eternal, never-giving-up, always-lasting love of God. And how do we abide in that love? We keep his commandments. We abide in the love of Christ by keeping the commandments of God found in Scripture. I can hear the objections. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about love. All these rules, all these don'ts and do's, that doesn't sound like love to me. Keeping commandments is like, you know, 
When I hear that, I think of God as this big angry principle in the sky. He just wants you to you know, mind your P's and Q's. If you think that and you feel that when you hear that God wants you to keep his commandments, then you don't understand what his commandments are for. Let me try to uh, explain. I have a, a two-year, two three-month-old little boy named Judah. And Judah loves to play in the backyard. He loves, especially now that it's getting a little warmer, he likes to uh, turn over the rocks and catch all the worms. Loves, uh, and he, and so I, he, he always wants to be in the backyard. And I know if he likes to play in our backyard, he's going to love going fishing. So what we did a couple weeks ago, we went to Walmart, bought him a little fishing pole, got some hooks and got some bobbers. And then we've been at home practicing in the house without hooks, just the bobber. <laughs> practicing, cast it in, he reel it back. I tell him, hey, buddy, on Saturday, we're going to go fishing. Okay, on Saturday, we're going to go fishing. I'll show him videos on YouTube and stuff. And he's getting really excited. So Saturday comes. And we're getting ready. Everything's packed up. All right, buddy, we're ready. We just need to put your shoes on. And there he goes, and he starts playing in his little shoe box. All right, buddy, grab your shoes. You need to sit on the, on the stool, and I need to put your shoes on. He went to obey his daddy. Buddy, you need to sit on the stool, and I put your shoes on. He was running away from me, resisting me. So you know what I had to do? I had to discipline him. I gave him a commandment to put his shoes on, so I had to discipline him. And he cried and was sad. I got his shoes on, and then we drove to the pond. And when we got there, he got to throw that bait into the water, and then he got to reel it back, and a fish came out of this water. It blew his mind. <laughs> the joy he experienced fishing was nothing he has ever experienced in the backyard, really nothing he's ever experienced in his life. But if he did not obey my commandment, and I did not discipline him, he never would have experienced that type of joy. See, that's what God's commandments are for. His commandments are so that you live in a way that you would have never lived otherwise. And that is so that you can have greater and greater joy. God is in it for your joy. The reason that God came. The reason that he appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and through all the prophets and the kings, and the reason he appeared in flesh through his son Jesus is to give us commandments so that we would have joy. And he says that himself. Look at me at verse 11. Verse 11 is one of those verses that if we truly understand it completely blows our mind and it changes the way we look at scripture and it changes the way we look at all those difficult commandments of the, of, of the Bible. Verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why did God do all of this? Why did he create the world? Why did he 
reveal himself? Why did he allow his son to die on the cross and raise again? And why is he even now beckoning you closer to him? It is for his glory. And he is glorified by you having joy. Isn't that beautiful? That God is so serious about his glory, about his majesty, and he knew he could not diminish himself in any way because that would be wrong, that would be immoral. Something perfect should not become imperfect. But what he did was make it that he was most glorified in us when you are most filled with joy in him. We couldn't have figured it up any better ourselves, right? Christ came and he offers you unity with him through faith and trust so that your life is one of fruit that lasts and one of joy that is full. That's why Christ came. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again. I mean, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is where Jesus was put on a donkey, rode into Jerusalem, and there's this great processional of, hallelujah, the son of David is here to save us. And they would put their robes down, and they would put their put palm fronds down. They rode into Jerusalem. Their king is here. But Jesus knew five days later, this hill of Golgotha, he would be crucified. But even in that moment, riding in on a donkey, he says, look, I'm doing it for your joy. All those people who would mere days cry out, crucify him, he said, I'm doing it for God's glory, which is their joy. Now the hard part. <laughs> Verse 12. This is my commandment. This is the whole thing distilled. How, how do you do all of this? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Look around. <laughs> this is the landscape. This is the environment, the field with which you obey the commandments of God is by loving one another. That's hard, <laughs> right? If you've been to a family reunion, you know that <laughs> is hard. I think when, like, I know when I uh, you know, understand the gospel, I'm like, oh, Lord, you're glorious, you're wonderful. You are, the, you are the good father. And what he says is, tell you what, you want to love me? Treat my kids well. How are you doing in that department? How am I doing in that department? Are you loving your family and your friends, your coworkers, your neighbor, neighbors, with the same love that Christ loved you? Yeah, I'm not. I want to. Because that's the path to joy. That's the path to God's glory. Let me conclude with this. 
you know, the, the claim of Jesus that he is the only source of lasting joy, the exclusive source of lasting joy, it's audacious, it's profound, it's all-encompassing, but it's not unique. I mean, pretty much every advertisement tells you that, you know, this cleaner is the path to all-encompassing joy, right? Every worldview says this is the path to joy. Every religious leader, religious, says this is the path to joy. So Jesus' claim is not unique. But what makes Jesus' claim, what makes Jesus unique is that he lived this claim to perfection. As I mentioned earlier, a mere hours after Jesus is saying these words, he'll have nails pierced through his hands and nails through his feet. He will have a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He will be flogged to the inch of his life. And he will be put on a cross and die. But the book of Hebrews pulls back the curtain of this scene and gives us a picture into Jesus' own heart. See, Hebrews says that Jesus endured the pain, endured the shame because of the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Even in the moment of his greatest suffering, he had our joy in mind and he had God's glory in mind. So not only did he claim it, not only did he live a life of perfect joy, but he proved this claim because three days later, the love of God defeated death and Christ burst forth from the tomb in joy and invites you to take part in the life of joy. See, next week, Easter Sunday, Easter weekend, we're talking about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. If you want to love others as Christ has loved you, what you do is you invite people into that resurrection and into that life. And let me encourage you this Sunday, of all the Sundays in the, in the calendar, invite people into the joy of Christ with a new fervor. Because even if you get the, oh, you know, I'm, I'm cool, God is working in you. He is producing fruit. You are being obedient, and it is the path to joy. Let me close with just a few final points. So, so what, what do you start? Some of us are in here like, man, I don't live that life of joy. I, my life is not characterized by joy. What do I do right now? Well, you hear us say this a lot, but I want to say it again. There are three things that you need to do now to begin to abide in the vine deeper and truer ways. You need to have a life of prayer. You can't experience Christ's love apart from Christ's presence. And you experience Christ's presence through prayer. Are you spending time in prayer? Second, a little surprise here, Bible study. You can't obey the commands of God if you do not know the commands of God, and you know the commands of God through his word. Are you spending time reading his word? 
And finally, fellowship. If the command of God is to love others, you've got to be around others. You've got to be in fellowship and community. We do that through, life, through our Sunday morning services and through life groups. And finally, my encouragement to you as, you, as we sing and as you move into Holy Week, as our time of special times of prayer, and have a good Friday service and Easter weekend, remember that every step along Christ's path of Holy Week, from the triumphal entry to, the, to, the, um, to Judas selling out Jesus, to the whips, to the cross, to the empty tomb, is all done so that God will be glorified and that your life will be bursting forth with joy. And that's my prayer for you as we as a community move into Holy Week. Let me pray. Oh Lord, you designed our world, you designed the gospel in such a way that every part of it is good and every part of it is true and loving and right. Father, help us to not be tricked by those false vines. Lord, help us to turn our minds and our hearts away from our sin, away from our circumstances, to you, the true vine. Lord, may we draw all of our soul nourishment, all of our meaning, all our purpose, all of our strength from you. And Lord, would you produce fruit in our community? Will you produce fruit in our lives and our families so that we may glorify you, so that we may have joy, so that we can have strength to love our neighbor as ourselves? Lord, help us, Father. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. Prepare our hearts as we go into Easter weekend. And Lord, give us a greater urgency to invite those who do not have the enduring joy of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.